Welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. I'm here to welcome you into the world of orgasmic living by hosting experts to discuss orgasmic topics such as nutrition, spirituality, personal development, sexuality, and much more. Here, we will offer lifestyle lessons that can help you lead a fulfilling, joyous, and orgasmic lifestyle. I'm your guide, Venus O'Hara. Welcome to the second episode of the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. In episode two, we'll be interviewing Jamie Lee Grace, author of Happy, Healthy, Sober, and we'll be discussing the sexy side of sober life. Then I'll be reviewing the book I'm reading now, which is Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill. And finally, we'll be experiencing a guided meditation using sobriety affirmations. But first, let me tell you about my very own journey towards sobriety. I was 15 the first time I ever got drunk. It was cider and it tasted absolutely disgusting. However, I did like the effects. It helped me feel more confident. And all the silly things that I did with, along with my friends, it seemed to create a bond between us, a deeper bond. And then we would laugh about them the day after when we were really hungover. It also gave us a boost when we wanted to meet guys and kiss them on the dance floor. Yes, I was going clubbing when I was 15. I know that's a terrible thing. Didn't have that much money, obviously, to get drunk, but um, all you needed back then was, or at that time when you weren't used to it, was just two drinks and then you were kind of um, tipsy, I suppose. So I was never out of my face or kind of, I didn't have blackouts or anything like that. Some things like that happened later in life, but at first it was just a bit of giddiness, a boost of confidence, but still the hangovers were awful. Then when I was 16, I had my first boyfriend and I was so in love. This guy was, for me, the most attractive guy in my sixth form college. I couldn't believe that he wanted to go out with me. And as I was shy and awkward, alcohol was a big part of our relationship. We both live with our parents, so we couldn't really be alone that often. So we ended up going to bars or pubs and then drinking. And then I remember just as the alcohol would go through my body, the inhibitions would, I would just love them. I loved how it helped our conversations. It seemed to be a lot deeper and, and more expressive. I think that's a real problem, especially in the UK, that conversations, deep conversations are not, are not so easily come by. Alcohol definitely helped. And it also helped me the day I actually lost my virginity. I remember saying to him in the pub, I want to feel you inside me. And if it hadn't been for the cider I'd had to drink before that, I probably wouldn't have said it. Then we went back to my place. I lived with my parents and they were upstairs in bed. And we had sex on my lounge, on my, in my, on my sofa. We were quite wasted. I can't believe I took that risk. And... It was the third month that we that we were together and he'd never put pressure on me to have sex before then, which I really, I'm really grateful for. 
Anyway, because of the alcohol, he struggled to get an erection. I had some condoms that I had been given from a friend who who had lost their virginity before me, and she gave them to me to be prepared. So anyway, even though I had all these condoms, he thought that to try and get hard, he would put his penis near me until he got hard and then put a condom on and penetrate me. But he he never told me any of this. And then all of a sudden there was a kind of push. And the next thing I felt was all this wetness between my legs. And I said to him, oh my God, I'm so wet. And he said, that's because you've got thousands of sperms swimming inside you. And that's how I lost my virginity. So it was kind of over and done with before I could even blink. It was a Friday night and I was really worried. I had to get up the next day with the worst hangover I'd ever experienced and pretend to my mum and dad that I was actually fine and go for the morning after pill and get an emergency appointment at my local doctor. It was the first time that I went to the doctor without my parents to try and prevent becoming a parent myself. It was a massive wake-up call. I remember the doctor saying to me, what time did the accident happen? And I said, 2 a.m. So anyway, I had the morning after pill and it was awful. I was so happy, of course, to actually prevent an unwanted pregnancy. But I felt so sick after it, especially after the second lot of pills. And I couldn't really tell anyone what was wrong with me. But three days after that, it was Valentine's Day. And I met up with my boyfriend again. And I'd forgiven him for the lousy first time. And also for, I didn't really have a go at him for not telling me that he wasn't wearing a condom. I didn't want my first time having sex to be defined like that. And also, I was kind of very passive and submissive and I let him do whatever he wanted with me, to be honest, which is a terrible thing, of course. But anyway, we went to a hotel in the afternoon and he gave me a Valentine's Day card and he told me in the card that he loved me. And I was... I was absolutely over the moon because this this was a guy that I absolutely adored. I I always thought that he was out of my league because I didn't have that much self-esteem at the time. Anyway, as I was relaxed after that first time having sex, which was disastrous, on the positive side, I didn't bleed like I'd heard and, and it didn't hurt at all. So I was relaxed, anticipating my second time having sex. And also, we were much more prepared this time. There was no alcohol involved and we just had sex all afternoon and even the bed moved across the room and I had so many orgasms from penetration which I learned later that that wasn't very common for women but it was just the most incredible experience of my life and that's probably why I have become a sexpert because I really did enjoy penetration. But then a couple of years after that, I went to university and Freshers' Week is a week when everyone just gets wasted, basically. And I was quite scared of going away to a different city on my own, being away from my friends, the ones I'd grown up with, meeting new people at the age of 18. However, as soon as 
I drove into the actual university campus with my parents. I saw lots of second year students with a special t-shirt on and they were actually helping all the freshers to settle in. So at that moment, I just felt immediately at ease. But anyway, Freshers Week was a whole week of activity, activities which just revolved around alcohol, basically. Drinking games and drinking games and more drinking games. And that's how we bonded with people. For me, that was a very normal thing for me growing up in the UK. I didn't know any, any different and I did what everyone else did. So yes, lots of hangovers. And what was really funny about university, well, not half funny, but strange at least, is that sometimes you would be in a, a party, you would be drunk with someone and you've thought that you'd made some connection through conversation and then you saw that same person the next day in class or on campus and they completely ignored you as if, I don't remember that Saturday night, maybe they didn't, but it was almost like it hadn't happened. That connection was just fake. So moving forward, I actually studied French at university and during my third year, I had to go abroad to France, the country of wine. I was still a, a lager drinker at that point. Well, I'd started on cider, which was kind of the cheapest way to get drunk. And then at university, I'd evolved. I started having lager and some kind of spirits as well. Um, but obviously in England, they, they measure the shots and it's quite expensive to drink that way unless you buy a bottle of five pound vodka or something like that. And I did that quite a lot, actually. I with some of my best friends, we used to just, um, when we were kind of down or we didn't have enough money, we just used to buy a small bottle of whiskey or or vodka and just stay in and dance. And that was really fun, actually, even though I'm not really a, an alcohol, um, I'm not really a proponent at this moment. I do remember those times and uh, and smile. So anyway, I was in this uh, bubbly haze of alcohol, which for me was the most normal thing in the world. And then the moment I didn't realize it was normal was when I was in France for my year abroad. I went to live in Paris and I assumed that I'd be drinking the best alcohol around in the country where the grape is grown. I met lots of people from different nationalities I was um, doing a work placement and then in the evenings I would go to class, um, French class for foreigners and there, that's where I met lots of people from different countries and it was incredible. Even though we were all from different countries, we had one thing in common. We were in France or in Paris for a year and we wanted to make the most of it. it. It was just amazing. These friends were incredible. But the first time we went out, we went to a bar in, in Paris we were a group of 10 people, two English girls, me and another friend. When we looked at the menu or the uh, of drinks, we were trying to calculate the cheapest way to get drunk. So we bought a bottle of wine for 100 francs, which is about 10 pounds to share between the two of us. And everyone else was drinking Perrier. I couldn't quite believe it. These really cool people were drinking fizzy water in a bar on a Friday night. And they were just laughing at me and my friends saying, oh, you're so, you English people, you're complete, <laughs> you love your alcohol kind of thing. So anyway, we got the bottle of wine. And also, it was also strange to get wine without food. But of course, we were English, we didn't care about that. So we got wasted, me and my friend, 
and we were the only people drunk in that group. And also, it was just strange to be in a situation where we were the only drunk people, whereas before I was just another person, everyone else was drunk as well. This was the first time I actually questioned alcohol and maybe in my own consumption of it. And I started to question if it was a good thing or not, because I never thought I had an alcohol problem. I don't think I had an alcohol problem. I think society has an alcohol problem, especially the society that I grew up in. And also the week after this famous night out with um, this bottle of wine, some of my friends were kind of um, the ones who were drinking Perrier were trying to tell me, you did this, you said this. I knew it wasn't true, but they were kind of making it up to kind of make me see that getting drunk was just not cool. And at that moment, I decided to give up alcohol because I was in a group of people that didn't drink and it didn't seem appropriate. And also this group of people who were, who were from different nationalities all around the world, they weren't interested in going clubbing or going to bars. And at that time, people used to smoke in bars and they didn't want to come out of places and have their, their hair and their, their clothes smelling of, smelling of tobacco. So I discovered a whole new way of socializing. We used to do really cool things like go for walks in the evening, go to the theater, do historical excursions, um, go bike riding. It was just incredible. There were so many different ways to, to enjoy a weekend. Whereas before that, for me, it was just get wasted at the student bar. And that was it really. So that was a real eye opener for me. And also I met a lot of Spanish people and Latin people there. And what I loved about them, especially was listening to Spanish, of course. And this is what really made me want to come and live in Spain and why I'm still here today. I just loved how they expressed themselves and how they could express their feelings without having to be drunk, which is something I'd grown up, grown up with. And it was very new to me and I found it just so, so refreshing. After France, I went back to the UK for a year and I was still sober and being in a student environment with all these drunk people, I was just, I felt like a fish out of water and I did not want to be there. I spent 10 months in the UK and just, I just did my finals and I was out of there and I'm, I've not been back since. Well, obviously I've been back to visit people, but I haven't been back for longer than four days really maximum. I can't quite handle it. <laughs> so anyway, I just found this whole new way of, of living. And um, when I first came to Spain in the year 2000, I was still sober. And slowly over time, I started to learn a more, let's say, healthy way of drinking. Because in Spain, the, the shots, they're not really shots really, but if you have, let's say, a rum and coke, the rum is not measured so strictly as it is in England. They're quite generous servings. So people actually tend to have less drinks over a night. And also they're very expensive. It could be 10 euros or 12 euros for a drink, which is very expensive. And people don't have a drink in their hands constantly, whereas in England they did. Well, according to my experience anyway. So anyway, slowly I started to drink again. And at first it was moderately and and it was fine. It was all fine. And then um, I can't remember really what happened, but I think I did always 
kind of like the, the sober life. And um, I did remember it with fond memories. And I suppose I wanted to be a sober person in my, in my head, but some of my practices were different. And so I had a few crazy nights, but not as many as when I was back at university. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and I started going vegan around six years ago. And I remember that really did affect my enjoyment of alcohol, especially my tolerance. I couldn't really take that much. And also around that time, two of my best friends left Barcelona at the same time, which of course, for me, I was devastated. But the great thing was, because every cloud has a silver lining, it kind of forced me in the nicest possible way to actually reassess all of my social life. So I actually gave up alcohol, but it wasn't really that simple, but I kind of created a sober social life. And also this coincided with, I had designed a sex toy and I was going to do a magazine cover for a magazine that doesn't exist exists anymore. It was called Interview. It used to be the most popular Spanish weekly magazine. It was about current affairs and politics and TV. And on the cover, they used to have a famous woman who was topless. And it wasn't someone who would usually do topless photos. And I'd done this photo shoot for this magazine for the first time in 2011. So I knew it was just going to be really good for my career. And so anyway, I was preparing for this photo shoot to promote my sex toy. And the sex toy I was designing kept getting... So anyway, I'm going to go, let's, let's start this a bit again. So at this time, my friends were leaving Barcelona so I wanted to create a sober social life. And around the same time, I had created or designed a sex toy and I wanted to promote it on the cover of Spain's biggest magazine. It's a magazine called Interview, which used to be about current affairs, politics and TV reality stars. And on the cover, they would always have a famous woman topless. So it's kind of like a really big deal, this, uh, this magazine. So the sex toy I had designed was delayed. <laughs> it kept getting delayed. And in order to prepare for this shoot, I gave up alcohol just to lose a few pounds, chocolate and pizza. And, and it was incredible because after one month, I lost about three kilos without really doing anything. It was supposed to be a temporary um, diet. I don't really like the word diet, but I was just doing it temporarily just to lose a few pounds so that I would be cover ready for this magazine. But the sex toy I designed was delayed because I didn't like the prototype. So I kept sending them back until I found one that I did like. And then months just went by and I just got used to sobriety. So I don't even remember when my last drink was. All I remember was I was I'd given up temporarily just to get ready for a photo shoot, and this photo shoot kept getting pushed back. So by that time, I was determined to actually continue with the sobriety. I did go back to the chocolate and pizza though, but that's another story. And I just loved how it felt, and I'd already created this uh, daytime sober life. 
I'd met lots of other people who were also sober and into a different way of socializing. I joined spirituality groups. I became an organizer of Barcelona Vegan Community. And it was just incredible how things just became more diverse than just going to a bar and having drinks. It hasn't all been um, celebratory though. I remember meeting up with some friends that who were, let's say, drink buddies in the past. And I've had to deal with comments such as, it's a pity you don't drink anymore. Or people kind of insinuating that I'm boring now because I am i don't drink anymore. And that's quite hard. But at the end of the day, I think I, what I have gained from it is, is a lot more. I've, I've realized that lots of other people don't drink either, or they just maybe have one drink at Christmas. So it's incredible. When you, when you change yourself, you start to attract other people who are on your vibe. That might sound a bit woo-woo, but that's definitely what's happened to me. And now this month, I am going to be celebrating six months with no alcohol. Cheers to me. Now it's time for this episode's interview. I'm going to be speaking to natural anti-aging influencer and BBC radio presenter, Janie Lee Grace. Thank you so much for being here. Janie Lee Grace, welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast. Thank you so much for taking part in this interview today. I'm so happy to have you here because last week I was um, Googling natural anti-aging influencers and you were, you were the first name that appeared. Really? Oh, good. You do so many topics, you cover so many topics that I'm interested in. And today we're going to talk about sex and sobriety and self-care. And today is a great day to be sober after the, um, we're recording this, the morning after the Euro Cup final. Mm, <laughs> well, yeah, it's been, it's been called Hangover Monday, isn't it? All the talk about alcohol, man, it's been bonkers. <laughs> so how is the atmosphere? Lots of hangovers? Yeah, well, certainly from what I've seen in the media, but thankfully not around my house. Oh, that's <laughs> I'm good. very grateful for that. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I wasn't watching the match. I was reading your book, Happy, Healthy, Sober, last night. And as a sober person myself, there's lots of things I can relate to. For example, there's one part you mentioned celebratory drinks after an interview when you worked on the radio. Mm. And I used to work on the radio here in Spain, and I used to be really nervous on air and full of adrenaline. My heart was going crazy. It was a nighttime show. And I always felt that I needed a drink after just to kind of feel grounded so I could sleep. Mm. And I was wondering, um, you know, we often consider that alcohol is a reward. I was wondering, what yeah. do you think now? Um, what would you recommend now instead of alcohol? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, just to sort of preempt that, you know, I think, I think you're right. It's really interesting that we, we give alcohol so much credit for everything and you know it's 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 the th it's the social glue that sticks everything together you know so celebrations commiserations you know um but also it's the thing that we think will will give us confidence when we want to feel sassy and sexy and confident and but we also believe that it makes us chilled and helps us rest i mean when you actually look back it's it's ridiculous that we that we um attribute all those uh, clever benefits to to what is essentially liquid um and you know if you want to really tell it like it is poison <laughs> so but you know we all did it we did it for years and i and i certainly did um, and I think what, what happens is when you, when you finally recognize that actually, um, 
there is no need for alcohol. There is not one single benefit from alcohol. It has zero benefits. When you finally grasp that, you can start to ask yourself, okay, what's, what is it that I'm really wanting? What's the feeling I'm really wanting to achieve here? Because, you know, we know it's this kind of think, feel, act cycle, isn't it? We have a thought, how we want to feel. And then we look to our unconscious mind and we ask ourselves, oh, how do I get that feeling? And what would have happened for you and for me in many occasions is you know that the you know the, the thought is oh I've done a really good show and 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 I want to feel rewarded and I want to feel good and and I also want to wind down now you know so what's the feeling you're trying to create well I'm trying to create a feeling of feeling okay and happy and being able to relax and then you have to ask yourself well how do I how can I actually achieve that and it certainly isn't by something in a glass. <laughs> so we become much better as time goes on at focusing on what the real resources are that can do that for us. So what's a healthy way of relaxing? And of course, it's different for everyone. But, you know, in the book, I suggest masses and masses of sort of possibilities, self-care tips and tools, you know. And so it might be that you actually just need to take a bath with essential oils or, 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 you know, listen to a podcast or go for a walk in nature or, or, um, or whatever it might be. Or maybe it is that you want to consume something, in which case I, you know, I'm sure we'll get to it, but my kind of mantra is keep the ritual, change the ingredients. So if you genuinely do feel, you know what, I really do want a celebratory drink of something. There's nothing wrong with that, but why should it have to be alcohol? You know, why should the word celebration equal alcohol? Have a lovely glass of something alcohol-free that you really enjoy, and the choices are endless now. Um, you know, but, but it, as I say, it may be that you don't need to consume anything at all, but it all comes down to putting the pause in. So you have that thought, oh, I really want to feel, you know, grown up, happy, relaxed, chilled, whatever it is. How can I create that feeling? In the past, I always created it, or I thought I did, with alcohol. But now I'm going to put the pause in and ask myself, how can I actually really properly create that in a healthy way? Excellent. Another part I could actually really relate to is that you um, stopped drinking during dry January and, and you had the intention of it being just for January. And for me too, actually, um, I stopped drinking in 2016, I think, um, or actually 2015 that's even better um so i was actually doing this uh, front cover magazine shoot here in spain and this cover just kept getting delayed i was just wanting to just you know give up alcohol and chocolate and pizza just to kind of lose a few pounds and then over time this this um cover shoot got delayed more and more and i just actually got used to sobriety and i really liked it my eczema went i lost weight without really doing that much and that's uh, great and my skin got better and it's just fantastic so what stopped you from drinking again in february Mm. Well, um, for me, I, I went through many rounds of this sort of ditching the booze for a while and then going back to it. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think many people do. And, and what's really interesting is I think lots of people um, stop drinking as, exactly as you say, because they want to lose weight or they want, you know, they, they want to do a detox, a mini detox. Um, and, and then what happens in many cases, and I'm thrilled for you that it, that it, it didn't, it's brilliant. But what what happens in so many cases, certainly for me, lots of times, was that you, di you ditch the booze, you do manage to lose a few pounds eventually and start to feel a little bit better. And then you find yourself at a party or an event and, and then the wine witch comes calling and, and says, well, you know, there's nothing else to drink really here and everyone's having a great time. And you know what? You don't have a problem. You've got this because you've just done however long without booze. So it's really not a problem for you. You can 
easily be a moderate drinker. So just have one, yeah? Uh, and then uh, for me, that happened so many times. And then I was back on that slippery slope. But this last time in um, 2017, when I stopped, it was, it was a very different kind of experience. It was that I had, uh, I'd been feeling really not that great for months. I, I was so conscious of my own sort of, um, uh, I felt so vulnerable. I, I, I looked in the mirror and I hated everything I saw and I was so scared of getting older and everything just felt so negative and I was definitely bloated and, and really not feeling authentic, you know, not surprisingly on account of I've been you know, I'm kind of queen of natural health. And there I was drinking every night, waking up at 3am every day. Um, so I knew something had to change. I just didn't know how. I just didn't know how to do it. Um, and then I was given a book to read, which completely kind of, it's like a switch flicked really because I read this book it was The Sober Diaries by Claire Pooley and she was just like me she was you know someone who wasn't at rock bottom didn't need rehab but definitely something had to change and so she had gone through the same experiences and she made it work and it just so happened that it was Christmas it just so happened that I was given a couple of weeks to read the book before we were going to be interviewing Claire on the radio um, and that I was going to be meeting her in the January so for me it wasn't a choice of, okay, I need to lose some weight. I need to detox. January's coming up. I'll do dry January. It was more a case of something has to change. I've got to give this a go. I just absolutely have to give this a go. And it just so happened to be January. So I figured, okay, I can do this for January, but I couldn't at that time see beyond it. I couldn't, I couldn't see what was going to happen because i I felt so nervous about the whole thing because, you know, it's been who I, it's who I am and has been for so many years or so I thought. Um, I think it's more daunting to give up forever, isn't it? It's, it's absolutely. Exactly. You know, the kind of I'm giving up forever felt too much, but I definitely headed into it with a different kind of approach. So when I was even just a couple of weeks in, although, you know, I think what's quite interesting is sometimes when you do, when you do recognize that something has to change, so when you're doing this from, it sounds a bit, it sounds a bit sort of um, uh, melodramatic, but I, I really knew at a soul level that something massive had to change. It, it wasn't just a little kind of health trend. It wasn't just, oh, I'm going to do some juicing for a month or I'm going to have more raw food or I'm going to, it was, I knew it was so much more than that. It was so much more than that. So I knew within two or three weeks, although it was quite tough at the beginning, I knew that this had to continue. So within a couple of weeks, I decided, okay, so I'm going to do three, three months, minimum, minimum 100 days. And then I said, okay, minimum 200 days. And then after that, you know, I knew that I didn't need to give myself any days because I'm not giving anything up. I'm only gaining. Fantastic. And before we get to the, the sex part, oh, actually, um, so you, I'm gonna, before we get to that part, in your book, you mentioned gray area drinkers. What does that mean? Mm. Yeah, so this was a term that, uh, that I certainly hadn't come across before, um, but it absolutely sums up how I was and how many, many people are. So in the UK particularly, we tend to think that there are two types of drinkers. There are those people who are absolutely at rock bottom, alcoholics, you know, in inverted commas, people who need alcohol services and rehab. And I absolutely didn't resonate with that. I was fully functioning. I was going to work every day. I don't think I ever took a day off work. I mean, I knew that I had you know, a serious issue and I felt terrible, but nobody else would have known. 
So I was fully functioning, but I was drinking more than I wanted to. And we now know that the term for those people is gray area drinkers. So they're not right at the bottom of the spectrum. It, the game isn't all completely up, but they're not okay either. Um, in my TEDx talk, you know, I, I, I said, you know, there are at least 50 shades of gray and none of them are sexy, right? Because it's like this kind of booze elevator and, and so we're somewhere on it, those people who are drinking. And my absolute top tip is don't wait till you get to rock bottom. You can step mm. off that elevator anytime you like, because that's where the magic is. That's where you find out who you are. That's where you live a better life. Nobody ever told me that. I always used to think, well, it's, I don't have a problem. I'm not at rock bottom, so I must be fine. And I had no idea that actually life is just so much better without any. Yeah, because I found that, I mean, I was, went to UK in university and um, everyone's getting so wasted at university. I remember going to some parties and you have to step over these drunk people yeah. passed out. That was quite common. Mm. Then I did my year abroad in France and it was a completely different thing. It was yeah. people were way more civilized with alcohol. And I actually gave up when I was living in Paris as well, because I remember going out with a group of foreign friends and I was the only drunk one, the English ones. We mm. just look silly, you know, in a group where everyone else is, is sober. But going on to uh, socializing, actually, um, it's interesting that you um, mentioned that no one's happy for you when you give up alcohol. It's not the same as giving up tobacco. Mm. I remember a couple of years ago, a friend told, told me, oh, it's a pity you don't drink anymore because I just wanted a party friend. I know. You know? And I think um, they weren't happy that sobriety was going so well for me. And um, mm. we had any, any similar experiences. Yeah, I mean, it's a really big thing for people when they first stop drinking. I've, uh, you know, I work as a coach now and I've had so many clients who say to me, uh, well, because we've had lockdown, they've been sort of almost protected in this kind of bubble because no one's been going out. And then they'll say to me, actually, I'm really scared of lockdown ending because my, my friends are going to be expecting me to go out and socialize. And they're already sending me texts saying, oh, can't wait till we can hammer the booze again. And, and it's, it's almost as though, people are afraid that they they're they're not going to be fun anymore and of course this is what gets leveled at you by the sober shamers you know sober anagram of bores actually mm. the opposite is true it's drunk people who are boring right and when you really step into your new identity which takes a little while but when you step into your new identity as someone who doesn't drink that doesn't make you less fun it makes you more fun however having said that you know, you may find your socializing changes a bit because you won't have the same, well, I call it a boredom threshold. You know, you get so fed up with people repeating themselves. <laughs> yeah, and you're almost certainly going to want to, you're going to want to leave early. So I always say, you know, do your prep, decide, give your friends a heads up. And actually you can say whatever you like. You can fib if you want to, you know, or you can, you can say whatever you need to say, you know, listen, I'm driving or I'm on medication or I'm choosing not to drink for a while. Or you might even want to be totally honest and say, do you know what? Um, I'm not drinking. I feel so much better. And the best way you can support me is just, um, let's just have a great time. You don't need to worry about me. Uh, you know, and you ring, ring the venue, find out what great alcohol free drinks they've got. And if they don't have any, absolutely take your own um so that you're not feeling kind of left out with your cup of tea uh, or your coca-cola you know you want a nice grown-up drink um and plan your taxi home early <laughs> and yeah. plan something for the next morning so that you have no temptation of of, think, of feeling it's that it's that kind of looking after the unconscious mind because otherwise the little inner toddler says oh this isn't fair everyone else is having fun and i'm not having fun and the sooner we can realize that 
you know, there's this expression, isn't there? The, the FOMO, you know, the fear of missing out. But we need to switch that to, to JOMO. It's the joy of missing out. Your life is so much richer. And you get the next day rather than the hangover Monday. <laughs> I think for me, when I gave up alcohol, my whole social life changed because a couple of my drinking pals had kind of left Barcelona where I lived. So I didn't have that temptation so much. So I adopted a more kind of daytime social life, more lunches and, and hiking yeah. and, and all nature and things like that. So I wasn't really in context where I was the only sober person, which can be really difficult. And also speaking of temptation in your TED talk, which I watched last night, you mentioned the wine witch. Mm. And I found, um, for example, just after giving something up, even it could be tobacco as well, there's a period of temptation but after that period of temptation comes rejection. So what you said just now about the repetition, the slurring, and then mm. the burps and the smell, it's just like, oh no, it's not a good look. <laughs> mm. It's not. I mean, it, it, you know, when I think back now, oh my goodness, it's like, well, how much time did I waste? Just is that, that, that lovely phrase, you know, tired of thinking about drinking. How much time did mm. I, I waste just kind of planning where I'd drink? I mean, I would never kind of arrange to go somewhere unless booze was involved. So even if I was going to watch a film, it was like, oh, I must arrive at a certain time earlier so that I can have a drink before the film starts. Or, you know, if I was taking my kids bowling, it's like, oh, okay, well, is there a bar there? I mean, just pathetic. And I think back to it now. And there's actually nothing elegant or glamorous about, about drinking. I mean, there really isn't. As you say, you know, people passed out. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's really horrible. <laughs> when, when, the, when the scales come off and you see it for what it is, it's just that we've all been, we've all been marketed to. It, the way that we're marketed to is we're made to feel that alcohol is glamorous. I absolutely bought into that rubbish. I really did. I thought that it was my piece of self-care, my grown-up treat to have my, you know, my cold glass of Sauvignon. I really thought that that was my reward as a busy mum or whatever. Yeah, definitely. And also here in Spain, it's like, and also as in France, it's very much marketed as a kind of like, cultural thing like a high cultivated thing or, or even a health thing in, in some contexts so let's talk about sober sex so you mentioned that some people are actually drunk sex first let's go drunk first um you mentioned that some people only have sex when they are drunk that is so sad I and mean, it's well documented that alcohol is not good for sex it can provoke erectile issues and the overall well, um, numbness just makes us less orgasmic and despite this, it does um, lower inhibitions. I remember one thing I did like about alcohol-induced sex was the alcohol-induced conversations. For example, when you're with someone that you really like at the beginning, when you're not sure how, how serious it is, and you have these declarations of love. <laughs> I mean, sometimes those things don't happen or, or without alcohol. You know? So how can we um, have these meaningful, deep conversations without Dutch courage? Mm, I mean, it's a really interesting take on it but actually when you think back to those you know as you described them meaningful conversations were they actually meaningful because certainly in my own case I can remember those kinds of occasions but while I I might have remembered them person I was with probably didn't <laughs> you know so number one you may not remember it number two you may say things you don't mean which mm. happens a lot and and what we know absolutely to be true is that sex with someone you know when you're kind of both both drunk particularly if it's a sort of passing encounter usually leaves you feeling really very empty you know there's not very many people that that feel 
totally comfortable with having had that experience and okay you were completely drunk and you maybe said lots of things that you don't remember the next day and how amazing and fantastic is that and I feel really completely at peace and balanced actually no <laughs> certainly for me I didn't feel like that at all um, with, when that stuff was going on. Yeah, I think the single people going out on the pool and getting drunk I mean it's not really about sexual urge or libido it's about ego in my in my opinion just yeah. like having sex with strangers mm. yeah and I, I i mean it's a slightly different conversation but i i mean i just think that what what i now know you know of course i didn't back then but what i now know is that um the most important thing really is to actually you know um respect yourself have that self-esteem that self-love um and that doesn't have to be completely woo-woo and it doesn't have to be egotistical at all but it's just when you meet someone who is very comfortable with who they are that really shines through and if you're comfortable with who you are if you like yourself if you actually properly like yourself then you're going to be much more attractive you're also going to be much better at setting boundaries at asking for what you need and it's all going to be much more, I don't know, more effortless, really, um, and definitely more satisfying than someone who is actually very insecure, the way I was, very insecure, quite needy, actually doesn't really like myself very much. So most encounters are really only about trying to find some validation from someone else, um, which then, if you don't get it quite in exactly the way you want it, you end up feeling very empty and lost and lonely. Um, and I think all booze does is amplify what's already going on. So if you're already feeling, you know, a little bit insecure, a little bit wobbly, we'll just amplify it. Um, Definitely. It, it, it doesn't help anything. There's no way that alcohol helps anything. I really believe that. I used to buy into all that nonsense that, that alcohol, you know, that at least in moderation is good for you. I just don't buy that. Not at all. You can... 100% have a natural high <laughs> um, without the booze. And also there's lots of new research um, that's just came out about women of childbearing age shouldn't have any alcohol at all. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, when I look back and I remember that, um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't drink in my pregnancies, uh, but I was just gritting my teeth, you know, waiting till, till I could drink again. And I, I certainly drank as soon as the baby was born, first thing I did, even during breastfeeding, I'm ashamed to say, um, because it's a dumb thing. You know, it's the mummy wine culture. But yeah, there's, there's, there's plenty of research out there. It's just we don't like to look at it. We don't like to look at the research that actually shows, really in truth, alcohol is the number one most harmful drug. When you Definitely. take into account everything, the economy, the harm to others, it's, it's off the scale, off the scale. Um, and, 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 you know, again, as I said a, a little bit before, I mentioned it sort of briefly, most of us do come to a point where we kind of understand that alcohol is not good for us and we have this sense of, oh, I ought to stop, I, I must stop because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to jeopardize my chances of getting pregnant if you're that age or, or I don't want to be overweight or whatever the pain point is, whatever the don't want is, we kind of focus on that because we know deep down that alcohol is really bad for us. But then we have this massive struggle because all of society is geared towards forcing us to drink the whole time, you know, at least at some point. 
And that's why I want to switch this conversation so that rather than just talking about that, that's, for me, that's just a given. It's just a given. We know that alcohol is bad for us. It's a poison. It's the number one most harmful drug. It's hideous. Everything about it is hideous. And if it were brought onto the market today, it probably wouldn't get licensed. It probably wouldn't, right? But it is, and it's here, uh, and, it's, and it doesn't serve any benefits. So why not focus instead on how much better life is without it? Because nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me that. I might see a, a, a therapist or a counsellor or if I ever went to the GP for something minor and then I felt brave enough with the person I was talking to to kind of just touch on the subject. And I'd, I'd, right at the end of the consultation, you know, I'd say, oh, by the way, there's just one thing. I'm, I'm you know, actually a bit worried about my drinking. You know, it took a lot for me to admit that, a lot. And of course, the GP would usually say, well, well, you, you know, you seem fine. How much are you drinking? And then obviously I'd lie because everyone does and they know you do. Oh, a couple of glasses. Well, you seem fine. You know, I'll tell you what, here's how you can do it. Just have, have a glass of water, you know, with every, with every glass of wine and, and maybe, you know, take Wednesdays off. You know, it would, would be their attitude. Lose a day then. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, or, or just have a, have a couple of alcohol-free days or have, you know, that's, that's their answer. Whereas really the conversation should have gone, you know, I'm worried about my drinking. That should have immediately, that GP should be thinking to themselves, okay, that's really taken a lot for us to admit that. This is a massive thing, you know? And really the answer should be, well, do you know what? I've got amazing news for you. Don't drink. Let mm. me help you. Let me signpost you to amazing ways that you can focus on optimum health and well-being because your life is going to be so much better without booze. No one ever says that to you. <laughs> some dangers with um, drunk sex is that, you know, contraception is forgotten. And also something that worries me as a, as a sex expert, I'm also, um, I'm kind of anti-promiscuity and hookup culture. Yeah, yeah, and I think definitely. it's really sad, you know, in, in this day and age that people are using these apps and, and meeting up with people they don't even know. And also they're going around to their house or like, you know, or vice versa. And then they're not yeah. telling their friends where they are or yeah, coming around to see well, them. Well, there's no doubt your inhibitions are absolutely going to be affected if so you're how drinking. Do we, um, you know, have these conversations or, or advise people without feeling like, or without kind of being prudish. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think for me, of course, my main thing that I'm trying to focus on is trying to encourage people to give this a try. Choosing not to drink, give that a try. And yes, if that means you can only do it for to start with for 30 days, give it a try. However, while you're giving it a try, rather than focusing on everything you can't have, rather than focusing on gritting your teeth till you can drink, focus on the prize, focus on what's to come for the future, focus on how much better you're going to feel, focus on how much more energy you're going to have, what else you're going to be able to do with your time, because, you know, when you're not drinking, you free up so much time. And I really believe when you do that, when you're, you know, a little while in, and it can take a while, it can take a couple of months for some people, you know, because your sleep might be disrupted at the beginning, it can take a little while, but it's investment in yourself. And if you do that, I really believe you will start to like yourself more. You start to get a sense of your own authenticity of who you really are. And when you know who you really are, and you like yourself a little bit more, you can really ask yourself, do I actually want that, you know, meaningless hook up? Do I, do I want that? You know, because you aren't, you're no longer trying to, you know, fill a hole <laughs> in, in everything that that means. Um, 
you, you it, it, there are different there are, you know you want connection on a different level mm-hmm. so i don't think we can kind of necessarily well i certainly couldn't kind of preach at people as to what to do with regard to mm-hmm. um to their relationships but i genuinely believe that if you look to yourself first if you if you if you get that relationship sorted first that relationship with yourself which i don't believe you can do when you're drinking i think it's really really hard I think it's really hard to actually genuinely be able to say that you take proper care of yourself and you have that sense of self-love when you're drinking. Definitely. And also there's lots of talk about alcohol and consent recently. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think you have to be completely sober to consent to sex? I don't know is the answer to that. I, 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 I don't think I'd go as far as to say that you, you, you have to be completely sober. No, I mean, I think there's been many occasions when I haven't been sober and I've consented and, and, and that was okay, you know. Um, perhaps I was lucky. But I just think it comes back to the same thing, that why would you put yourself in, in potentially dangerous situations why would you put yourself in a in a situation that you're going to regret the next day mm-hmm. because you've 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 basically taken some mind-altering substance why would you do yeah. that it's it's, it's 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 actually bizarre you know um you, you know we wouldn't we, we don't put ourselves at risk um the whole time we don't all constantly dangle off the edge of cliffs mm. um why would we do that because we, we want, you know, we have self-preservation instincts. We want to take care of ourselves. That's what you find in those situations that the friends don't really look after you. So I remember being sober at a birthday party. Well, they're probably party. drunk themselves, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. And this friend of mine was going back on one of these, you know, these, these bikes that people rent. And she was drunk. And I was thinking, oh, text me when you get home. But no one else bothered. Because mm, <laughs> you know, everyone's yeah. in their own kind of drunk bubble as well another thing you said in your book is that 27 percent of millennials are teetotal do you think this could be part of the reason why young people are reported to be having less sex than previous generations (laughs) that's a really interesting question um it it is true that there's a, a a bunch of millennials who are who are not drinking um you know, and I think that's for a variety of reasons. I think it's uh, partly because they've uh, got a bit more sense when it comes to, mm. um, you know, how they're going to spend their time and money because, you know, it's expensive and they recognize that you're just totally wasting money and wasting your time. I also think there's much more of a consciousness around um, mental health and well-being. And, and that link cannot be denied. The link between, you know, alcohol and, and poor mental health and anxiety and depression cannot be denied and it's time it was spoken about a lot more actually um so so i think it's great that that that, you know younger people are um uh, a lot of them are are aware of that there's also a lot of a a real big rise in the the sober curious movement or the mindful drinkers you know the people that that really are trying to make moderation work um you know so that they've got their very set rules about when they drink and they drink mindfully rather than just getting you know um, absolutely bladdered and, and mm. doing the things they, they say they don't want to. Um, is that the reason they're not having as much sex? I don't know. It might come into it. I wouldn't say it's the only reason. Um, I think um, I think it's a bigger conversation because you know what we were just talking about that whole conversation of of self respect and self care. I think if you are someone who 
has a really strong sense of sort of authenticity and taking care of yourself. And it's only in relatively recent years we've been able to say that without sounding way too woo-woo. <laughs> you know, even 15 years ago, if we'd have been talking about self-care and really, you know, being able to love yourself, everyone would say, oh, for goodness sake, don't say woo-woo. But now we can talk about that stuff. And I think actually... Um, one of the reasons people might be having less sex is because because of exactly what we've just been saying. They they do believe that they are you know that their connect their sense of connection is 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 precious. So why would they just fritter it away on a meaningless encounter? So why is what's the sexy side of sobriety for you? What do you think? You know, I think sobriety is like it's like a superpower. It honestly is. Um, it takes a while to 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 get there. I mean, I'm always, uh, you know, although I am, you know, queen of positivity around it all. You know, I do like to tell people the truth. That is, you may not feel fantastic within the first couple of weeks. You may not lose any weight. You may not have clear skin. You may not sleep well, um, and you might be a bit of a a bit of a mess emotionally. It can be an emotional roller coaster. If you're really doing this, you are you are getting back in touch with who you really are, and it's a big journey. It's a really big journey. Um, but once you're through that hard bit as it were um everything opens up for you and you do start to like yourself and that's the key to everything and you start to see the beauty in everything and you become kinder um for me all of that adds up to um just feeling you feel better about yourself so of course you 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 take more care of yourself so of course you feel more confident and you feel more sexy and you know how we started this conversation i was terrified of getting older terrified i couldn't see anything good about the future so everything's going to go south i'm just going to get more and more gray and miserable and fatter and more bloated and less energy and i don't feel that way anymore i'm not scared of getting older now now it feels exciting and fabulous because more and more great things happen all the time and that's 100 percent down to sobriety and you remember them, which is even more important. <laughs> and you remember them. Absolutely. You remember everything. Mm-hmm. And, and you become more kind. You really do. That is a big, a big factor. Mm-hmm. A big factor. And some relationships shift and shape a little bit. But I love that saying. I don't know who said it, but someone said, um, you know, as you, as you grow, um, you know, um, as you change and grow, you, you don't have to concern yourself with people that... Um, are not growing with you because they just naturally fall away. Definitely, definitely. So tell us about the uh, the sober club. So how could you? How did you? Um, how were you inspired to change to kind of convert your own life decision into something you're going to share with your community? Yeah, well, I, I I came out when I was about eight months sober. For ages, I kept it a secret. It's really interesting. I felt such a sense of shame, um, and I didn't really realize just how many people were doing this thing you know and it's a wonderful when you do um when you get the right support i did realize that you know that 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 phrase that johan harry you know um stated in his ted talk the opposite of addiction is connection and i i really started to get that there were a ton of things i wanted to talk about and i wanted to share but there was no point in doing it with someone who hadn't been there done it got the t-shirt it, there's no point in talking to you know to someone who was a drinker and there was no point in talking to someone who had never ever tasted alcohol because never been their thing it, i needed to talk to people who had had the same experience who had been locked into this and had 
become free, found their freedom, you know. So uh, I did my TEDx talk. I started my podcast, Alcohol Free Life. And then um, I decided a couple of years ago to start the Sober Club. And um, it's just been amazing because it's, it's a community of people who um, are all at different stages. So we have people who are day one, just starting out curious and trying to find their, you know, fit into their sober shoes. And then we've got people who are kind of five years sober and, and, and but it's all about well, what's next. It's like the sobriety underpins it. And there's lots of content and, and there's a whole course around the best ways to, to get through those early stages easily and so that you feel as well as you can feel. Um, but then we're on to all sorts of other things. So we have sessions on breathwork and angel card readings and um, nutrition and literally everything. Because I think once you've got that sobriety piece, so often people become really interested in all the other stuff, the optimum health and well-being, the, um, what's going to happen in their future. People change careers. That's really common. Or they start a new business or, you know, they, they find their purpose. So, um, so it's really exciting to see how people change and transform when they've ditched the booze. So it's a very, very small community. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's really um, it's really rewarding, actually, to, to, do, to do that work. Definitely. A few quick questions. Um, so what's the book that changed your life? Um, well, I mean, obviously, in terms of sobriety, it's Claire Pooley's book, which was called The Sober Diaries. Um, if you want to go back even further, then um, it was a book that I read. Bef- I, I, I genuinely think that I've been doing this stuff for so many years. Um, I, I sometimes joke that I've been writing about holistic health and well-being before coconut oil and kale had their own publicists right and one of the first books i read um was in the uh, it was in the 80s and it was called endless energy by a woman called leslie kenton Um, it was the most awesome book and it and it complete it completely changed my life and it was at a time when hardly anyone was was into this stuff it was you you know it was quite unusual to be into this stuff and she really inspired my first book which was called imperfectly natural woman um and that book was well ahead of its time it it really was and i think back now i was talking about um well coconut oil and kale (laughs) and far infrared machines and and mindfulness and uh, uh sustainability and all of that and that was um 2005 2006 um so yeah they're the probably the two books um but there are many so some quick questions What do you do to relax at the end of the day now that there's no wine o'clock? Yeah, I mean, a whole range of things now. Um, I... I love having a walk in nature and if I'm feeling really stressed, I know that that's the answer and I can change everything very quickly if I just you know, walk through some trees, sit with my back against a tree, <laughs> just calm everything down. Um, I'm a very big fan of, of, of nice warm baths with uh, some uh, Himalayan salt and essential oils. Um, I love my kind of meditation audios. Um, and I still wind down with, with, with a drink, but I make it an alcohol-free drink. You know, my, my phrase, keep the ritual, change the ingredients. I make lovely mocktails in lovely glasses. Um, and... Um, uh, and absolutely keep that that ritual speaking of um alcohol free drinks i was looking into an alcohol free wine here in spain mm-hmm. and um, i found one which was from the same brand a very popular brand and i just thought it's, it's full of sugar <laughs> so i'm kind of going for kind of it's very difficult to find drinks that are you know 
still not bad. I mean, I, I like, mm. I like kombucha a lot. I think that's a yeah, great alcohol, say kombucha is um, good. Mm-hmm. Um, replacement. And also fizzy water with lemon. People think it looks like gin and tonic, you know? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, this is something I, I do a lot in the sober club. I talk about this a lot. And I, and I think that, you know, you're right. There's a whole range from having a, you know, fizzy water or an artisan tonic. You can drop a couple of berries or some herbs in a glass of, mm. of fizzy water or tonic and really pimp your drink. You can add a tiny bit of um, an alcohol-free spirit alternative. In inverted commas, there's a lovely one called Sea Arch, which is, uh, you know, an artisan blend that's junipers and sea kelp in it. That doesn't contain any um, any sugar at all. Um, and, and then, then you can, you know, as you say, kombucha, some kombuchas are really good. I like the Boucher brand is really lovely. And then there are some, um, alcohol-free sort of wines or fizz that, um, are not too bad. They've certainly got nowhere near as much sugar in as alcohol as wine. Um, mm-hmm. one brand is called Naughty, N-O-U-G-H-T-Y. And that's an alcohol-free fizz, which is very low in sugar and vegan and a, a really nice alternative. So I think if you kind of look around, do, do, do your homework, you can find some, some drinks that are, um, obviously don't have alcohol, but are also much healthier, in inverted commas. The great thing is so much choice now. That's what's really cool. Um, mm-hmm. I had a, a really lovely birthday party when I was just about a year sober and I was really worried about it and thinking, oh, I'm going to be inviting friends, drinkers, and what do I do? I make, do I serve alcohol? And that didn't feel right. And I, oh, I just didn't know what to do. And in the end, I just had an afternoon party and I made it mocktails and cake. Um, and it was such a success because we just literally laid out a whole bunch of alcohol-free drinks, a whole bunch of tonics, um, you know, and, uh, and like little, pimping stations so you could have an olive or lemons or limes and people loved it it was really fun a really great way of trying loads of new drinks i would never have done that in the past it was just give me the wine <laughs> that's what i did it when i was before i gave up drinking i would just see people in the day as and not the night just not get tempted to get too mm. drunk you know have lunch instead of dinner or something like that mm. and, and make sure there's no yeah. alcohol Another um, question, um, what, which phrase or affirmation, do you have a, a favorite affirmation that you live by or a quote? I like um, feel the fear and do it anyway. That's, that's always been, you know, something that's kind of resonated with me. And then I think, you know, when I was, I used to, I worked for quite a long time sort of helping people with their businesses and media training and stuff because of my background in the media. And one thing I, one phrase I love is you don't have to get it right, but you do have to get it going. And I think that really applies to so many things, including choosing the path of sobriety. You know, you might not get it right. It might not be perfect. Everything in your life might not be 100% healthy, but just get it going, get started on the path. Excellent. So how can people find you? Um, I'm very easy to find. Um, it's just Janie Lee Grace on social media at Janie Lee Grace. Uh, the soberclub.com is there's some blog posts, some competitions there. You can watch the TED talk, you can listen to the podcasts. And then if you want to join us in the sober club, there's a, a small membership fee and um, be part of everything we do there. But there's, there's loads of stuff at the sober club and I've got various, um, uh, various books and things out as well. But yeah, I'm easily findable at Janie Lee Grace fantastic so thank you so much for joining us today on the orgasmic lifestyle podcast it's been a real pleasure thank you so much thank you i really appreciate it the book i'm reading now is outwitting the devil by napoleon hill and why am i reading this book 
Well, I absolutely love Napoleon Hill. Napoleon Hill is the author of Think and Grow Rich, which is an international bestseller. And it's actually the world's best-selling book on success. It was published in 1937. And even though it's written a long time ago and published a long time ago, the lessons in that book are actually still relevant today. And what he did in that book was actually interview lots of very famous or famous or successful people to try and create some formula of success. And it had a really profound effect upon me. And I find that whenever I read Napoleon Hill, I start to be more focused on my on the things I want to accomplish in life. And I start to think bigger and believe in myself. And as a result of these actions I'm taking in self-belief, then I, I tend to attract better things. Speaking of attraction, it's not specifically described, uh, but it does imply the law of attraction throughout the book. And I do think the law of attraction has to be taken with a pinch of salt in some circumstances, because I think a lot of people profit on it. And there are lots of scammers involved preying on vulnerable people, because when you're vulnerable, that's when you turn to this type of content in general. I know in my case, it was like that. I found Think and Grow Rich when I was at a time in my life when I was full of self-doubt, but I didn't ex spend any of my hard-earned cash on courses that were promising miracles. I just read the book and took action. So I think what's it's not important about what you, it's, it's not important what you read. It's what you do when you close the book. I think that's very very important. But going back to outwitting the devil, it was written after Think and Grow Rich. And it was a result of, it was inspired by a very difficult situation that Napoleon Hill was in. It was a, a, um, a professional struggle. And then this book was, it was um, describing how he went from a difficult moment to a more, how would I say, a successful one. So the book is about a conversation with the devil. And the devil is actually a state of mind, which is controlling, I think it's 98% of the world. So it's basically talking about mind control. And it's very interesting, all the things that are, that are distracting us from our real purpose in life. And one thing that I found to be very interesting and very ahead of his time was how he spoke about cigarette smoking which is apparently something of the devil. <laughs> this is very well, I think we know that nowadays, but this was at, this was written at a time when cigarette smoking was actually considered to be healthy. So that's very interesting. And let me read to you exactly what he says. You may not know it, but cigarettes break down the power of persistence. They destroy the power of endurance. They destroy the ability to concentrate they deaden and undermine the imaginative faculty and help in other ways to keep people from using their minds most effectively. I think this is so interesting because it's true that when people smoke, it does affect their concentration because after a while when they haven't smoked, they're suddenly craving cigarettes and that's all they can think about. But something that's very addictive these days, which is probably worse than cigarettes in the in the sense of what it's doing to our com concentration, is smartphones and social media. I think people are unable to just leave their phone alone or check their social media for a few hours. It's always constant, maybe several times 
in an hour. It's and people walking down the street, con- constantly checking emails, checking, checking how many likes they've got, etc. So I do think social media is actually worse in that sense in terms of what it's doing to our concentration levels. Something else that he talks about, which is which is the reason why I loved Think and Grow Rich so much, is the concept of the power of sexual energy and more specifically sex transmutation. I remember when I was reading Think and Grow Rich and I came across, I think it's chapter 11, the mystery of sex transmutation. I was so taken aback. I was thinking, why is there a chapter about sexuality in a book about success? And I thought it was very, very interesting. And this is what he says about the emotion of sex. By the simple process of transmuting that emotion into some form of activity other than copulation, sex is one of the greatest of all forces which motivate human beings. Because of this fact, it is also the most one of the most dangerous forces. If the average man would control his sex desires and transmute them into a driving force with which to carry on his occupation one half the time, one half the time he dissipates in the pursuit of sex, he would never know poverty. So it's very interesting to link sexuality with with um, abundance. I thought that was very, very, very interesting. I started to go down the rabbit hole of sexual energy and, and manifestation and abundance after I read that. So I, I did think it was very interesting. So sexuality can be something to help you and it could also hinder you depending on how you use it. And it can definitely be a massive distraction. There's no doubt about that. Another interesting idea is that the devil speaks about religion being his ally, religion being his ally to actually control people. And we wouldn't really think that. We, We assume that religion is part of God and the good, which is uh, not true, apparently, according to this book. I'm not sure, I'm not saying that all religion is bad, but this is exactly what he says in the book. Religion does not produce, cannot produce accurate thinkers. Religion limits the human mind to the blind acceptance of dogmas and creeds, unproved and unprovable hypotheses. This does not help the power to think accurately. And for me, as a former Catholic, I can definitely <laughs> appreciate that because I do think, um, you know, religion does have a good side to it. There's, there's no doubt about that, how they help people in some ways. And people do find solace from religion, but there are other other parts of it that do tend to be kind of dominating our thoughts and our beliefs and not and preventing us from questioning things for sure. Another big takeaway from this book for me was the six fears in life. And the six fears, these are the fears that the devil supposedly uses to dominate us. And those fears would be the fear of poverty, the fear of criticism, the fear of ill health, the fear of loss of love, the fear of old age, and the fear of death. Very interesting. And some of the ch- the chapters are talking about 
definiteness of purpose, which is something that comes across or is included in most of Napoleon Hill's books. I think it's so important in life to actually know what you want. It's so, so important and actually take all the actions to take you to that objective in life. And it also talks about, there's a chapter on self-discipline. And one thing that I found very, very empowering is the chapter about learning from adversity. I do believe personally that pain is our greatest guide and our greatest teacher. So when we're in a moment that seems difficult or challenging, that's the time when we can really make decisions to make changes in our lives and go towards new objectives. And I think all great things started with a painful beginning. That's my particular experience. And I think I've seen so many examples of that in my life. So definitely Outwitting the Devil is a book that I highly recommend. I've, I'm just going through it now and I can see there's so many parts of it that I've underlined and it's definitely worth revisiting because it does help me to get back into that more focused mindset. So highly recommended. Now it's time to slow things down as we prepare for this episode's guided affirmations meditation. It's probably not a good idea to listen to this while driving or operating machinery. Instead, take a break from whatever you're doing, get comfortable, take a deep breath and enjoy. I love myself. 
take care of myself. I am sober. I embrace sobriety. I am grateful for my physical and mental health. I have the courage and the willpower to choose sobriety every day. I forgive myself. I love myself. I take care of myself. I am sober. I embrace sobriety. I live a healthy life. I abstain from excess. I avoid intoxicating substances. I love myself. I take care of myself. I am sober. I embrace sobriety. I spend my money on things that are good for my health and well-being. I am proud of my progress. I reward myself with healthy treats. I love myself. I take care of myself. To find out more about me and my orgasmic lifestyle, visit venusohara.org or follow me on Instagram at instagram.com slash venusohara. Make sure to search for the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. Have an orgasmic week and make sure every day is a climax.